0: Okay, now for our next message, it'll be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Persevering Hope, Walking Worthily. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone as it always is on another beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, as has been mentioned, I just want to say a little bit about what's been going on, uh, you know, uh, I've lived in Oklahoma my entire life, and many of you have as well, uh, or different parts of the country, you know, nearby that has similar weather weather patterns. But you know, <laughs> we don't. You don't get used to it, do you? You know, I mean, these these things that that happen. Uh, we are used to these storms. We are used to potential tornadic uh, activity, uh, but. As I was thinking this week, and specifically I was thinking about today, and I was just, you know, in 1986, everyone keeps talking about, uh, I was born in 1984, so I was only a couple years old uh, when the 1986 flood came through, and so I really don't remember that. I've seen pictures. And I've seen flooding happen, uh, but nothing on that scale. uh, And I've never experienced uh, quite... uh, a situation like this, where we have so much involvement with local authorities and then preparing and things like that, of what, what could take place. Uh, but it's interesting how we live in this life and we kind of go through our daily motions. And it's easy to think that, yeah, we have tornadoes and, yeah, we have things like that. But, you know, the Arkansas River, it's a staple in Tulsa, right? I mean, that's not going to flood. You know, that's not good. I mean, it flows, and sometimes it's higher, and sometimes it's really low. And we have all of this technology now, and we have all of this construction that's been built. And a lot of that does help. But I'm reminded this week that no matter how much we humans can develop, no matter how many new pieces of technology or new devices or uh, different structures that we can build, we're still at the mercy of Mother Nature. And that there is only one God in the universe in which the winds obey the voice of, and that is the God that we serve. And so it's a good reminder of no matter what takes place, God's in control, but also just how finite we are. How at the mercy of God that we are. And so I think it was just, it's, it's, it's a good reminder of that. And so as you See the sermon title today, as uh, Sean just said a minute ago. It's basically section two, or sermon two, of the series that I started about a month ago or so on the epistle of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And so today's message title is Persevering Hope, Walking Worthily. Now the first message that I gave was over chapter one, and we entitled that Persevering Hope, In our conviction or living convictions. And we talked about what it was like to live a life of conviction. And specifically, we asked the question, how do you live a life of conviction in Christ? And so, one of the ways that we can, as we look through this chapter, and we're getting ready to go through some of the verses here in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to talk about a few things. And I'm even going to point out, I'm going to ask you a few questions. And we have some individuals with some microphones. I'm going to ask, For you to maybe bring some contribution if you feel uh, compelled to do so. Uh, No requirements, but if you feel compelled to do so. Uh, But one of the things that we can do to live a life that's in conviction to Christ, and if we are in conviction in, in our walk with Christ, we're going to, of course, strive to walk worthily. Now, in our English dictionary, if we look at that word worthily, I looked it up just a little while ago, early this morning, and the definition is having adequate or great merit, character or value. A worthy successor of commendable excellence or merit deserving, a book worthy of praise, or a person worthy to lead. And we understand that our calling and what we're supposed to be walking worthily of is our Savior Jesus Christ. Now that might sound cliche, walk worthy of your calling. But it's a tall order. That's a difficult task. And it's a lifelong journey, isn't it? It's not just something you do today, and then you've achieved worthy status of Christ. And of course, we understand that none of us are worthy of Christ. That we're going to stumble in that walk sometimes. We're going to fall. We're not always going to measure up. And in the end, we never measure up. And the only reason we do is because Christ's atoning blood covers us. And we get his grade because of the grace of God and because what he did on the cross for me and you. But we strive to walk worthily. And Paul talks about this in the second chapter of Thessalonians. And so I just want us to read these first few verses, verses 1 through 12, just to get a feel for what Paul is talking about. This is where the body of the letter starts. Chapter 1, which we went over last time, was kind of an introduction. And he talked about all kinds of things. He talked about living a life of hope. He talked about living a life of faith, living a life of love. And all of those things that surround those ideas. All of those things that uh, have to do with those things. So, for example, when we walk in hope, when we walk in love, when we walk... In faith, what does that mean? Well Paul's going to get more into it in this part of the passage. In verse one of Second Thessalonians the second chapter, Paul says, "For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly, we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and changed and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so here Paul's charging the Thessalonians to walk worthy of the calling that they have been given in the glory of God and the kingdom of God. That God is bringing them into. So I have two points for us to look at today. And for us to consider. The first one is. Be willing to speak boldly about the gospel. With the integrity of Christ. Boldly speak the gospel. This letter right here. And this section. Much of it has to do with Paul. And his companions. His traveling companions behavior. Among this early church that he's, fought, that he's founding, the Thessalonians. So in our opening verses here, Paul refers to several things. One of the ideas that he touches upon is delivering the gospel in a bold manner. What does it mean to be bold? Let's just think about that. What about Paul and his companions? What about their presentation of the gospel was bold? Was it because they came to them and they were the best speakers these people ever heard? Well, it doesn't seem like that. Paul seems to kind of, on the contrary, say it's not because we were so good at what we said, necessarily. Think about it today. What does it mean to be bold in something? If you're telling people what they already believe and what basically the majority already believes, what everybody already accepts as fact or truth or It's just basically you're in the norm. You're kind of of just going with the flow. If that's what you're speaking, is that bold? Probably not. Being bold means that you're taking a risk. Being bold means that you're courageous. Being bold means that you're confident. And oftentimes, this idea of being bold means that you're standing up and you're saying something even though it goes against the grain in what people typically believe of. And let me tell you, Paul was going against the grain. And not only was he going against the grain, him and Silas and Timothy, were they going against the grain when it came to the pagan world, the Romans, but they were even going against the grain of their own countrymen, the Jews. So you have the Jews in opposition to what they're saying, and you also have the Romans and the Greeks, the Gentiles that were in opposition to what they were saying. Paul didn't go in and say, hey, you Greeks here in Thessalonians, or you Jews here In Thessalonica. Zeus is God. Apollos is God. Think about what Paul said to these individuals. We hear it so often, but I think sometimes we can miss what it means whenever Paul says that they came into Thessalonica, as well as other places in the New Testament, as well as other individuals in the New Testament. They came in to a city, to a group of people, and they said that this man... Was named Jesus or Yeshua. Whatever obviously pronunciation they had. This person was the Messiah. And they must have been looking at him thinking Messiah. Hold on I thought you just said that he was crucified and he died. Because if you were thinking in these days. If you were a Roman especially or a Gentile or a pagan. (laughs) The idea of someone being a Messiah did not jive very well with someone who had been put on a cross or stake and crucified, which was one of the most humiliating ways to be put to death in the Roman world. So Paul and his individuals that he was with, they were bold. The words that Paul uses in this section include, not only were they bold that they came to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, with the message that did not include error, uncleanness, or deceit. And what's interesting is that these words are a trio that's often during this period of time associated with the idea of trickery. You see, this wasn't something new. People in Thessalonia or other parts of the Roman world, they weren't like surprised that Paul and them came. Because that was something common. There was all kinds of people that would pass through different cities and would be preaching this doctrine or that doctrine. This was a common thing, And oftentimes, a lot of these preachers were deceptive. They were trying to profit off people. And Paul's trying to demonstrate, look, you probably hear all kinds of people coming through here teaching you this or teaching you that or having this teaching or doctrine or whatever. And they use crafty words, and they try to be trick—you know—they try to trick you or be deceitful because they're they're really telling you one thing, but there's a there's a vain, selfish motive behind it. And Paul's saying that we did not come to you in this manner. These three words, air uncleanness, or deceit, are kind of a trio, a trio in the first century that these words oftentimes were associated with traveling charlatans that were just trying to deceive and trick people. And to believing something or, or something else. And so I have a question for us. So I have a couple individuals in here. And of course there's no requirement. And, and some of these questions are a little general. But I'll try to get them a little bit more specific. Can you think of an example of when you were bold in speaking the gospel? anybody think of a time maybe that they... We're in a situation where they had to be bold in speaking the gospel. Mark. Okay. Absolutely a great point. I mean, obviously, we live in, in a world that has certain ways that we do things. And at, at, in, our, in our church here, we, we have some different beliefs uh, that typically are traditionally not followed in our modern culture. And so it, sometimes it takes boldness. And an and interesting thing is is that when we think about this, I mean, obviously, you might have a different experience and a different story. But most of us probably have not feared for our lives to be put in jail or for our physical health to be in jeopardy because of preaching the gospel or because of our faith or beliefs, right? That's probably not one of the risks or fears that we have when it comes to preaching the gospel or preaching Christ. But if you think about it, in this day and age, there still are some risks, right? Because even though we still live in America, it's 2019, things are changing a little bit. And so proclaiming Christ today has risks. Because in a lot of circles, it's looked upon as something that's negative. And so, my question for you is as a follow up to this, you know, we may never have experienced a fear for our life in speaking the gospel message to people, but what are some of the risks associated today? We take when speaking about Jesus in the gospel.
1: Ken? Hello. One of the things that, that leaps to my mind these days is, is you just go outside in certain places wearing a red hat with Make America Great Again, you're liable to get attacked. You know, seriously attacked people have a problem with someone standing up for what is right there's a lot of and I'm thankful for this there's a big movement to get around the Roe v Wade loophole and stop abortions people look at you and they say oh you're just trying to push your stuff on us you know and so anything that you use Stand up for, and you—they and, and do not want to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. They—they they may like the idea that they can get away scot-free, but they don't like the idea that there's r- rules you got to follow to make that happen, you know. And uh, so, when when you stand up for that, you can get in trouble.
0: Sure, absolutely. Anybody else? Okay. Well, if nobody else, and if you think of it later on, we have some questions, uh, you can chime in on that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a risk today, and, and, and sometimes when we read the scriptures, we can't, just, we can't just assume that just because it's not specifically in the exact same way, that there still isn't applications for us, because there are. And we do live in an age where claiming Christ, in some ways, in some circles, you can be looked upon as weird, you can be looked upon as automatically like you're like a bigot, that you that you're trying to, you know, uh, persecute people's beliefs, or or rather, uh, that you're, uh, because you disagree, uh, because you believe that this is the standard for all life, Uh, some people take that as like a contempt for them. In other words, like you are somehow condemning them. Uh, And some of that, unfortunately, is not helped by certain behaviors in the Christian realm, or the so-called Christian realm, and the way that certain people act. Uh, but there are risks associated. And, and, and unfortunately, even though we live in America, in a lot of ways, claiming Christ and being bold is, is a bold act. You know, G- Jesus didn't say, hey, go preach my gospel or preach about me like in your closet or in your home only. He says, go to the world. And that inevitably means that you're going to go to places that are uh, in conflict, that, are, that have contempt for the gospel message, not just in America. Of course, we know that America is kind of an anomaly in some ways. There's different ways in which Christianity can be difficult in America, but in other countries, Muslim countries or Hindu countries, where they just, they literally they will they will uh, threaten you with bodily harm. And so, those are some of the things that I want us to think about because we're trying to you know we believe that this is for all centuries. We know that there's applications for us today, even though we might not experience persecution in the same manner that Paul and his individuals that he traveled with, Silas and Timothy, did. And so one of the things that Paul touches upon, because he doesn't just say, hey, look, we came to you, and we weren't trying to be deceitful, we weren't trying to trick you. We were genuine, that we spoke the gospel boldly. And here is proof of it. He cites their trip to Philippi. So I want to go to Acts, the 16th chapter, and read a little bit about what Paul and, and his traveling companions experienced even before they got to Thessalonica. In verse 11 of chapter 16 in Acts, I'm breaking into context here, but it says, Therefore, sailing from Traos, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city ...of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul... And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Verse 16 is a little bit of an interesting point here, or part. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God. ...to proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace and to the authorities. And of course, just stopping there, we see that Paul, he's in Philippi. Him and his traveling companions... And what happened? They, they, they experienced persecution. And one of the things, and one of the ways they experienced persecution was because they were correcting false teachings, false behavior, paganism, divination. And so it's interesting to see this in light of what Paul says whenever he's speaking to the Thessalonians, look at our track record, look at the boldness that we had. Now on this, there's another interesting point that I think we have to think about. Because not only was Paul, especially here in Thessalonians, and we read the letter and we see as we read, one of the things that Paul was worried about was the persecution was going to result in damaging the faith of those in Thessalonia, And so Paul was concerned. He sends Timothy away to go check on them. And he's worried that the persecution might overcome them and might make some of them want to turn away from the faith. But in other letters, oftentimes, another thing that Paul has to deal with often is false doctrine. Because Paul will plant a church, he might make an elder there, and then he'll later go and check on it. And he's worried because he lives in a world where the false doctrines abound. And so sometimes it's hard to find direct parallels, right? From our time to their time. But one thing we know is sure. One thing we know is that just like in Paul's day, false doctrine abound, that hasn't changed. There's all kinds of teaching out there. There's all kinds of doctrine out there. There's doctrine within Christianity. There's doctrine in other religions. There's all different ways that sometimes people try to trick you into believing something that is clearly anti-God or anti-biblical. And so I'm reminded of a passage and Colossians, Because Paul deals with this specifically. And I think on this line, and looking at what Paul has to deal with, I think it's also uh, important for us to consider not just some of the, 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 the potential uh, hinders that we'd have from being persecuted, but also the hinders that we have in false doctrine. So let's go to Colossians, the second chapter. I want to read something. Because it's interesting, because Paul points to that idea of, of deceit. You know, we live in a world of deceit. Even our marketing schemes that we see on TV, oftentimes, unfortunately, not always, are meant to kind of be, be a little bit deceptive. Smokes and mirrors, right? But Colossians, the second chapter, I'm going to just pick it up in verse 1. Paul says something very interesting. And he's talking to a group of people that they're having to deal with all kinds of crazy ideas about Jesus and about the teachings of, uh, of Christ and things like that. He says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be be encouraged, being knit together in love, and uh, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now what we can decipher from this passage here in Thessalonians, or not Thessalonians, but Colossians, is that there's some sort of deception going on in these churches in this area. We don't know completely what it is, but it must have surrounded something to do with the nature of Christ uh, and the the nature of salvation. And the reason I say this is because much of the first chapter is devoted to the idea of the preeminence of Christ, his power, his deity. And so some people were getting wrapped up in the idea of who Christ was. uh, Was he this? And there's this idea of like docetism that's kind of abounding. If you know what that is, it's this idea that, Jesus really wasn't a man or a flesh, but he, was, he just appeared to be so. And so you have all these different philosophical things going on. But what's most key in this passage is whenever Paul uses a specific word to describe the way that people would talk about these things, when he says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now, this word deceive is different from what we find in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. It's a little bit different, and it's a word that means reason aside, to defraud, delude, or distort. And the word has an element of trickery to it. So there's some some similarity there, but it's a little bit different. And so this was the message, or this was the method that was employed by many of these false teachers. Uh, They would be smooth in the way they would talk. They would, you know to deceive you by trickery. You know, trickery, they would try to use this passage and that passage and they would play on different concepts and ideas and try to appeal to either emotion and things like that, but there's an interesting little part about not only this word deceive in the Greek, but the word uh, persuasive words, which is the Greek word pithanologia. and this is the only time in all of the New Testament that this passage is used only time and it's a we we don't have a lot to go on in the new testament with it being the only time that it's used but we have examples of it in the greek literature of the day and so oftentimes this word uh, pithelop is a word that is specifically referring to courts of law where different people like lawyers would use to deceive and influence their audience into an unjust verdict so in other words, it's a word used specifically describing individuals that would stand up in court to try to use a what seemed like a logical argument but really wasn't logical for the purpose of making people believe in a lie. Now let's just think about that in modern thought in the world that we live in today. I don't think there's very hard to think of examples of how this happens today. This is a great example Of what we still have going on. Here in 2019. We see this in politics. We see this in some of our academic universities. In some of our philosophical circles. One of the things that they're all trying to do. Is deceive us. Deceive us into believing against the truths. Of God. That have been delivered to us. Whether it be ideas about evolution. Whether it be ideas about. History and about. Rewriting history. Whether it be about ideas of whether there's a God or there's not a God, what, you know, science and things like that, humanism, that you know, really there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as objective truth. Everything's just relative. That we all make our, you know, our rights and wrongs depending upon where we live, depending upon the majority. This is kind of the world that we live in today. And oftentimes, they use very persuasive words. They try to appeal to logic and make it seem logical, but when you get down to it, it's really not. Reading on in verse 6 of Colossians, the second chapter, Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So here Paul gives us the antidote. The antidote for those who are false teachers seeking to deceive and lead people astray so walk in him walk in him is a familiar term in the new testament right so if we're walking in him we're going to be bold in preaching the gospel we're going to be bold in trying to walk worthily of christ let's just think about that idea of walking in in, in christ is that something that we do every day or we attempt to do every day It's a difficult task, right? But of course it's something that we do every day. The result of walking in Christ, as Paul says, is that we'd be rooted and built up and established. You see, we were baptized at one point in time. And we were begotten children of God at that point, right? see, rooted is the idea of what? That we are constantly growing the roots metaphorically, obviously, of ourselves, of the creature that we are, further and further in the ways of Christ. This is a lifelong journey. You see, being rooted in Christ is something that we have to be if we're going to grow. If we're going to grow from Christ, we have to be rooted from Him. And when things happen, whenever there's perse- persecution, or there's you know people who are... Coming around with persuasive words and trying to get us off track, we're going to be able to withstand those attacks, as the Ephesians, the sixth chapter, tells us. Now, there's a great example of Jesus that he gives us in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 24 and 20 through 27. We've all heard this before, it's a little bit somewhat of a parable. Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 20, 24 through 27 says, And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So as we look at this first part of First Thessalonians, the second chapter, and we ask the question, how can we be bold in Christ, with the integrity of Christ? We understand that being rooted in Christ is key. Rooted in Christ is key. Let's look at the second main point. They're a little bit different, but they're, I'm trying to bring out what we can find in these passages. Now, these are not the only two points that we could get from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But obviously, we're, we're limited by time. We only have so, much, so so much time, and so I brought these because I believe that these are the things that really jumped out when we read. These 12 passages. My second main point is. Have a servant heart. That focuses on increasing Christ. Not ourselves. That's what Paul was doing. Paul was going as well as companions. After the pattern of Christ. The cities proclaiming Christ. Not for himself. What gain did he have? What gain did he have personally? It was for the gain of the glory of Christ. For the kingdom. And so when we read the gospel message, we see Jesus doing these things on our behalf. And of course, he would become king. But he brought us a pattern after his followers that his followers would take after he died. After that spirit came on the day of Pentecost, as we are counting down today. As I was reading this passage this week, and I was thinking about the different points, I thought, wow... That's, this is a servant mentality, which is exactly what Christ talks about. Being authentic, being rooted in Christ, being convicted in Christ, as we talked about in our last message, means that we're going to have a servant heart, a servant heart. One of the most, one of my most fond, I mean, there's so many passages, we could, I mean, there's, most of us could probably say, what's your favorite passage in the Bible? You could probably make a whole long list, but. One of my favorite passages that's always resonated with me came from John the Baptist in John chapter three, verse twenty-five and thirty. You see, John, you know, he comes on the scene and he's preaching this idea of of a of a gospel of repentance, right? Uh, a, a gospel that says, you know, make way, you know, the, the paths for the Lord. And so John's baptizing people; they're in the Jordan, and he's gaining followers. And Pharisees and religious leaders come to him. And they're like, what is this crazy man doing? And he's not, he's not detoured from it all. But he says this in chapter 3 of John. It says, now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Is the key to all of this. Is the part that really has resonated with me. And I'm I'm sure you uh, you, you feel the same way. He must increase. But I must decrease. What a passage. He must increase. But I must decrease. That's not just a passage in my opinion. That's a way of life. That's part of what Christianity is all about. That's part of what Christianity is all about. And that's why this main point is. Have a servant heart. That focuses on increasing Christ. Not ourselves. In this passage in First Thessalonians, the second chapter, verse six, one of the things that Paul's trying to lay out is how they don't do this for their own glory, they don't do this in vain, they don't do this because they have some sort of ulterior motive. But as Paul says in verse six, nor did we seek glory from men. Another parallel that we can make between us and people living in the twenty or the first century. As well as people living in the 1st century BCE or BC. And the 2nd century BC. And all the way down to Adam and Eve is this. Human nature, we have this inclination to want glory. We have this inclination to want the credit for things, right? And we see that throughout the scriptures. We see that pride sometimes gets in our way. And sometimes we want people... To think that somehow that we're something. Something greater than really what we are. But Paul tells us we did not seek the glory from men. That's something that Paul dealt with. That Jesus dealt with. That all the people in the Bible dealt with. This is a difficult, something that we deal with today. We see our own church history and our own tradition. And we see many different eras in it and different different ages we see churches split up and oftentimes it's associated with pe- because people's egos people's egos you know this isn't part of the the bible or scripture but i did hear a speech one time it was on a video maybe you've heard it before it was a commencement speech at a graduation and the individual is a really good speech and i, I don't know exactly who it was that gave it but it's what i saw was only about 10 minutes but the individual that gave the speech, he said something, he says, "Make sure that your servant's towel is bigger than your ego." I thought, "Wow, that's that's so true in life. Make sure that your servant's towel is bigger than or is bigger than your ego." So when we live our life as Christians, you know, what 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 are we? Are we trying to follow after the servant mentality of Jesus? Jesus dealt with a lot of people in his day. He dealt with people that were just listening to him. And one of the key groups of people they dealt with was the religious leaders. I want to just turn to a passage in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And I want us to read something that is some very strong words of Jesus, our Savior. Very, very strong words. Matthew, the 23rd chapter, verses 1-12. through 12. The very end of gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, strong words here. Verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, and observe whatever they, uh, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Notice how that they don't talk about, they're not condemning Moses, they're not condemning the law, or he's not condemning the law. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay on them people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their, with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor, at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers." And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that the king of all the universe, the king of kings and the lord of lords, was the greatest servant of all. And a pattern for all of us. Have a servant heart. Have a servant heart that focuses on increasing Christ, not ourselves. That focuses on increasing Christ, not ourselves. Now, in contrast to this, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, verse 7 through 12, we understand. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. I don't want to stop there and think about that. Parental language. And we talked a little bit about this last message. How Paul uses parental language when he's talking about founding this group. Now, none of us can say that we're founders of churches probably. There are some individuals here that were a part of kind of starting this church in some ways. Uh, uh, and, And of course... That's a long history and and another story. But let's think about this in terms of our relationship with each other. You know, Paul says, you know, follow them, follow us as we follow Christ in many places in his letters. And oftentimes Paul and his associates, they had a familial or parental love for those individuals that they cared for and the churches that they started and the individuals in there. They care greatly for them. How do we feel about each other in the church? Obviously here, but elsewhere. We're all one body in Christ. And we touched upon a lot of this in the last message, but we have to ask the question, does our love for one another bring us and drive us to want to serve one another? How do you love one another without serving one another? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7-12 through says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. And Paul and his companions, they risked their lives to found this church, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, I think, is the key to walking worthily. Right here. You are, witnesses of God, uh, you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and changed every one of you as a father does his own children. Some more familial language. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory and so I have another reflection question for us and this might be a little bit of a difficult question because there's so many ways that we could answer and that's okay because I don't think that there's one word to describe how we do this my question is how do we serve one another in the church how do we serve one another in the church Anybody want, I know you're, some of you guys might be thinking, I, I, I remember this teaching. I was just going to say, just look around and see where there's a need. You know, if somebody needs a ride to church
1: or um, if somebody needs help in some manner that we don't know of, go ask if there's a need.
0: Absolutely. Without. Anybody else? That's a difficult question. Because we serve each other in many different ways. Every single week I come here, I see people serving. I see people serving in the back with food. I see people serving with Sabbath school. I see people serving by providing us music on the stage. I see people serving giving messages. And I'm not including myself. I'm not trying to say that I get much more, I'm sure, uh, uh, out of... Serving uh, myself probably than I ever would, uh, you know, take you know taking. I think that we we get more out of serving. That's that's the pattern that God has given us. anybody else want to chime in on that? It's a difficult thing. A few years ago, we asked some questions, and uh, but you had some pre knowledge of what the questions are. And so when we asked the question, "How do we serve one another in the church?" I think we can kind of go back to that familiar language. You know, some of us who are parents. Some of us who are parents kind of understand this. You know, it's not just something that we think about when it comes to our children, but it's just like second nature, right? We're always kind of looking out for them. We're always thinking about what they may need. And I think that's kind of the pattern that Paul is kind of driving on here. And it's, it's not something that it doesn't mean like if, if you're serving one another, you have to be doing this, you have to be doing this, you have to be doing this. I don't think that's how it is. I think it's kind of an attitude. I think that you're always trying to look to see if people, like Sean was talking about, if there's a need somewhere. What way can I serve the brethren? I see a lot of people that serve in this church and I think it's a wonderful thing. And that's, I think, one of the benefits to having a church set up like this where we don't just have one or two people that do all the work. Right? We don't just have one or two people that speak. We don't just have one person that plays the piano and that's it. We have multiple people who play instruments or music. We have women who provide somewhat of a, a women's ministry through the Beth Moore uh, uh, Bible studies. That, all of that is a way of serving in our church. But there's other ways too that we can serve one another. Sometimes just listening. right? People have problems. People have things that they're going through. And just being willing to sit down with somebody... And listen to what's going on. Or praying for one another. Those things are, are, are really important. Going, you know, someone's sick. Someone has had, you know, something tough. And we go visit them at the hospital. Because they had something happen to them. All of those things, I think, are ways that we can serve one another. And so, that is a tough question. I will have to admit. I have another question. And this is based upon... Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a, lamp, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My question is, how can we walk worthily of God and be a light to the world? other tough question.
1: The way to be a light to the world in this instance is to reflect the real light, and that's Jesus.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's what Jesus himself is getting at, right? Okay? And so it's interesting, and I've said this up here before, but we know that the sun is our source of light in this physical world, right? As far as the physical elements go. And. And Jesus is called the light of the world, and we know he is. But we're also called light of the world. And so there's a great analogy that we can look at just from science or from our natural physical world or physical universe when we look at the sun and the moon. And we ask the question, does the moon in and of itself have light? And of course it doesn't. But it's a reflection of the sun. And so as people look at the light of the moon, they're really seeing that the source of that light is the sun. It's reflecting the source of its light, and that is the sun. And so in the same way, we as Christians are charged with going out to the world and being a light to the world as people see our light, they see what we are reflecting, and that is the light of Christ. And so as we wrap up this message, does anybody else want to chime in on that? I know these are difficult questions because they're probably a little bit too broad, Uh, but I wanted to make sure that they weren't too specific because I wanted to stay faithful to what we were talking about. Uh, But as we wrap up this message here in uh, 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, I want us to think about that idea of walking worthily, about being a servant and having a servant heart. That idea of walking blameless, as Paul talks about. Uh, that idea of, 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 of walking devoutly and justly and seeking justice. And a lot of that has to do with how we treat our fellow man and how bold we can be as Christians in pronouncing the gospel of Christ. And what I mean by the gospel, that's, I think, a multifaceted thing. And what I mean by that is, is not. I mean, obviously we understand what the gospel is, the kingdom of God, and, and, and the way to the kingdom of God through through Christ and how he was crucified and died and he rose from the grave and because of that we all have access to this uh, to God the Father and we have, uh, we're on this journey to the kingdom of God but also just the ways of Christ just when we talk about things in our society when we talk about issues that we, we promote a godly behavior that we reflect and we are, we are, uh, we, we are faithful to reflecting the light of Christ yeah some kid
1: one thing I want to say about helping sometimes when you see something that you feel needs help people aren't necessarily gonna think you're helping
0: sure (laughs) absolutely
1: you know and, and just just say you see a little one running through the sanctuary okay And you slow them down, and you say, "No, not in here," you know. And there's a couple of reasons for that. There's there's instilling in them honor for God's house, but there's also instilling in them be careful of people that are not as stable and as fast as you are. You don't want to you don't want to cause somebody to fall. You don't want to cause something. You know, just that was my fault. Sorry. You don't want to um, you you don't want to be a jerk, <laughs> but you want to be able to help them, especially when they're young you know uh the bible tells us a couple of times to seek the elders elders' advice, and I'm not saying that because I'm an older guy you know because there's there's plenty of folks that don't necessarily want my advice. But anyway, that's, that's it. If you see something that you think needs to be said, but you've got to do it in love. You've got to do it right. Jesus never just jumped on somebody for, you know, just to jump on them. But you need, there, there may be something that you can help someone with.
0: That's a good point. And, and, and that's, that's so true. I mean, it's sometimes it's difficult to uh, correct people uh, because we're worried about them getting offended or things like that. Uh, but, but at the same time, uh, not trying to squeeze everything to be a part of our main point, but I think it, it is a way to serve one another, is a way, you know, giving them instruction is a way of, of being served. You know, I mean, just like a, going back to that parental... Language, you know, we, we, we live uh, with each other or, you know, among each other. and We're a church family and we're part of the body of Christ. And, and we're not only better together because we're in like, like faith, but we're better together because we can help each other when one of us might get off track. You know, we, we, that's something that's important. And sometimes when we get off track or something's going on, In brotherly love, uh, we we help each other. You know, if you look at it from the perspective of this person is trying to help me, because the path I'm going or what I'm doing could be I could be endangering myself. I could be endangering my you know my spiritual life. I could be endangering my physical life. I could be endangering uh, other things in my life. And so we have to sometimes take criticism, not as we're, someone's getting on to us, but as maybe someone trying to correct our behavior because they love us, and they don't want to see harm come our way, harm physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, and things like that. So I think that your point is well taken, and it's an aspect I don't think we think of. I think when we think of serving each other, I think we just think of whether you know we're serving someone because we're, we're, we're making a plate of food, or we're cooking for them, or we're Singing for them. There's other ways that we can serve one another, and so as we conclude this message, and there's a lot of ideas I think that came out of this. And let me let me just say that I think that we could spend weeks on First Thessalonians, second chapter, verse one through twelve. There's a lot of different things theologically that we could bring out. I wanted to kind of get the ball rolling on getting us to kind of chime in a little bit and talk. You talk. And uh, I think next time I'll probably, I won't be as, I won't be as general in some of my questions, uh, and and I'll try to be a little bit more specific to help you, uh, because that definitely I think will help. And so as we think about this message, I just, and think about the idea of walking worthily, you know, I I, I want to also bring out that in just a few weeks is going to be the day of Pentecost. So I want to kind of also include that in this. You know, walking worthily is something that's difficult. It's not, I mean, it's a tall order to walk worthy of Christ. That's not something that's easy. And we're probably not going to. And I'm not saying that to be negative. We're, we're, we're not always going to succeed. There's going to be days where we didn't do as well as others. Uh, but we have God's Spirit. And we are in this count to Pentecost. So I wanted to bring that up. We have God's Spirit uh, to help us along the way.